Uh, we are in Ephesians uh, 1 again. Um, we're going to be here. Same passage from last week, and we'll be in this passage, I believe, again next week um, before we move on. But if you would stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. This is Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, what, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The grass withers and the flower fades. With this, the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given this to us, um, not just for us to, to hear and to learn and to study, but also um, as a living means of your grace. We pray, Lord, that as we hear your word, not, that we wouldn't just understand something um, with our minds, but that we would know something with our hearts. That your spirit would do the work that he does and draw us to you through your word. Amen. You may be seated. Sorry, give me one second. This is my unrevised version. <laughs> Last week we, we started Ephesians. Um, and we hope, hopefully heard. I like to talk about what we heard, but you know, maybe you guys got something totally different out of it. And It's this, it's this letter of, from Paul to this church centered around these ideas of grace and peace. Grace and peace. This is what I pray for you guys to have. Grace and peace. 
and in them all spiritual blessings, he says. These gifts that come in Christ to a church who is struggling with their identity in the midst of a place like Ephesus. Struggling um, because they still have one foot deeply in the culture that, um, that they knew. And again, when I say culture, I don't mean something that's outside the church versus something that's inside the church, but something that we all have, that we all live in, that defines us. And they were struggling. Followers of Christ, the way that Paul talks about it, excuse me, that they're still oppressed by these masters. Fear of the powers around them. And with that, the idolatry and witchcraft and all these things that they sought out in their culture to protect them from these powers. This power of evil that, that Paul will talk about as the devil. Enmity in their tribalistic world. Suspicion and jealousy and hatred that is engendered by that. This power of evil that Paul will talk about as the world. And then the corruption of sin. Sexual immorality, greed, covetousness, slander, pride, and arrogance. the power of evil that Paul will talk about as the flesh. The devil, the world, and the flesh. This kind of anti-trinity, if you will, of powers um, that enslave us in sin. Actually, Paul's view is a very literary one. You have to excuse me every once in a while. I put a foot back into my old life as a teacher I was a social studies and language arts teacher, so I get really excited in these places. Paul's categories here lay very neatly over our classic literary conflicts. Like every story that we read has a conflict, and we break them into three categories in classic literature. If I were teaching you an English class, if you were all high school freshmen, I would talk about man versus God or nature. These conflicts with things that are bigger than ourselves that we little people could have no power over. Well, this is the way Paul expresses the power of the devil. We talk about man versus man, these conflicts with other people, the enmity, the strife, injustice. Well, this is the power of the world. That final category, man versus self, conflicts arising within us as we struggle or don't struggle with these choices that destroy us. Well, that's the flesh. It's really neat how it lays over so well. But what it tells us in the fact that it lays over these these classic literary um, structures so well is there's continuity here. 
This shouldn't surprise us that Paul names these things. This is how we understand every human conflict. This is how we understand all the difficulties that we face in our life. Paul just steps in and shows them for what they are. For the powers of evil and the devil and the world and the flesh. It's not something that Ephesus dealt with particularly. We all struggle with these things. The Ephesian church felt like they were losing. That they were still oppressed and enslaved to these powers. And if we're honest, when we take a step back from our own life and our own church, we often feel like we're losing too. So Paul gave us his prescription, spiritual blessings, the covenant, this powerful thing that we come into in Jesus Christ, grace and peace. And I'm guessing that at least some of you left last week and you felt there was some, well, it was a little vague, grace and peace. Okay, great. What does that actually mean? It's okay. We're going to dig in a little bit more this week to see how God in his grace works to rescue us from the powers that hold us and bring us into a new reality, this reality of grace and peace. That's really what verses 3 through 14 start to deal with, and then Paul's going to just keep going for the rest of the, the book. Verses 3 through 14, though, this is... how Paul writes. Um, It's actually one sentence in the Greek. It's enormous. We break it up in the English, but maybe as I was reading, even in the English, you're like, oh my goodness, where's the period? (laughs) We have these unwieldy sentences even when we decide to break it up. And what that means is we need to look at it all at once because it's all interconnected. Um, We're not going to talk about all of it today because there's so much of it, but it's one piece. It's one statement. So if I don't talk about something in 3 through 14 today, you're probably going to hear about it next week. Um, But this is his summary of the answer. What does it mean to have grace and peace? How do grace and peace, these, these, seemingly, uh, are, these seemingly intangible things from God, how do they translate into overcoming these powers? Well, this is how. Because God in his love and his mercy, he chose us to be his people. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week calls us to be holy and blameless and to do so he gives us specific blessings specific blessings that push against these powers and make us new in christ and it's interesting he identifies these blessings and if you really look at them they seem to line up really neatly (laughs) against each of these powers this is what he says he gives us adoption which directly combats the power of the world. He gives us redemption, which directly combats the power of the devil 
and it gives us forgiveness, which directly combats the power of the flesh. Adoption, redemption, forgiveness. This is what we see right here in this passage. And we need these things. See, we're still entangled in the enmity of the world. That's just the reality of it. For the Ephesians, we talked about last week, there was a very racial entanglement. The way that these cultures collided in Ephesus um, caused divisions, particularly between uh, the Jewish community and the Gentile community, and this, these divisions continued into the church. For us, it's everything. There's no denying it. Division and tribalism are the ways of our world. Our whole social existence is characterized in us versus them terms. And, and that's no different in the church than it is anywhere else. We talk a good talk culturally about the evils of prejudice and hate, but the reality of the fall is that every relationship that we have is broken. Every one of them. We have enmity based on race. There's no society, by the way, that hasn't, in one form or another, fallen into the trap of racism. And honestly, any belief that we have somehow moved past it, that we are somehow, oh, we don't deal with that anymore. I'm sorry, that is a belief that is based in ignorance or arrogance or shame. It's always there. And if we don't see it, <laughs> it probably means it's rooted deeper than we think it is. We have enmity between genders. So much of our life is shaped by the ways that we divide between men and women and how we either perpetuate or push against those divisions. It creates strife. We're divided over class, our vocations, our standard of living, the way we spend our money, what restaurant we go to when we're having a nice night out. The neighborhoods we live in, political ideologies, the way we parent, what we enjoy, you name it, we divide. We are very, very, very gifted as human beings. And maybe one thing above all else, identifying our tribe, narrowing it down to the smallest possible connection, and living our lives decidedly as other than everyone else around us. This is where injustice comes from. Let's not mince words, otherness, tribalism. This is not the way that we were made to live. This is a perversion of who we were made to be. We are called to justice. We are called to be, as we talked about with Abraham, a blessing to all the families of the earth. And to live in a world shackled to enmity is to be enslaved to the power of the world. It's to be enslaved to that evil power. 
but. Paul tells us that in his grace, in order to save us from that evil power that enslaves us, God does something incredible. In Jesus Christ, he adopts us as sons. And actually, the sons language is important here. I'm all, I'm all for uh, replacing gender-specific language where it's not important. Sons and daughters. But here in his context, sons is very, very important. <clears throat> and he's not just speaking to the men, he's speaking to everybody. But in Paul's day, uh, the adoption of a son was a very important thing. When a son was adopted in Roman society, his identity changed. Usually he was adopted in order to become an heir. He was no longer who he used to be. He was now completely the heir, the son of the father. <clears throat> no differentiation for biology, for birth. The most famous example that we have in history is, is Julius Caesar. He had no heir. And so he adopted his great nephew, Octavian. And when Octavian was adopted, his name changed. He became Gaius Julius Caesar. Oh, sorry, Gaius Julius Caesar gave him new legal standing. He got his father's power, and through this he became the first and arguably the greatest emperor of Rome. Through the work of Christ, God makes us his sons, male and female. We inherit a new identity in that way. And the implications are profound. We are no longer members of these tribes that are full of strife and enmity. We're no longer full of the families, members of the families we were born into that divide against the other families. We are grafted into this new tribe the tribe of Israel, the people of God. We are part of his family. And in his family, Paul tells us in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for all of you are one in Jesus Christ. There's no room for racism. There's no room for enmity between men and women. There's no room for any class division there's no room for any kind of tribalism in the new family of God. In Christ, we have been adopted. And that frees us from the enmity of the world. Even still, we're still crushed under the real powers that overwhelm us. It's powers that Paul identifies as the devil. To the Ephesians, there were spiritual evils behind every single thing that was bigger than them. That's why they made offerings to gods who represented the harvest, and they made offerings to gods that represented, you know, peaceful interactions with other people, and they made offerings to these kind of, to all these gods, and they even made their emperor a god. We we need to remember that we still live in a spiritual world. <laughs> and while we can chuckle at the you know, naivety of these ancient men and women who thought that their harvests were going to change based on the offerings that they made, 
we're a little blinded on the other side by modernism to assume that there's nothing spiritual going on around us. But we still feel oppressed. We get rid of the devil and we still feel oppressed, right? I mean, I looked at the news this morning. More war. More natural disasters. More death. More sickness. Our devil, our oppressors, they are economic, they are political, they are environmental, they are pathological. But regardless of who we credit these things to, we can't deny that we live defenseless against powers that are greater than any one of us, and that just like the Ephesians who turn to witchcraft and turn to the pagan gods, we turn to other powers in order to protect ourselves from a world that is not benevolent to us. This is another reality of the fall that we have to acknowledge. Because of sin, the world that we live in, the world that was created and ruled by a benevolent God is now the realm of powerful evil. It's broken. It's dangerous. And we are enslaved to it. We are captives of the devil all, however we name it. But we can't escape the reality that we are crushed under scarcity and danger and sickness and death, powers that we can't overcome. But in his grace, in order to save us from the power of the devil, God does something else incredible. In Jesus Christ, he redeems us. Now, redeems is a weird word for us. We don't engage with it the way that Paul's culture would have. Actually, it goes back to the Old Testament, to the law in the Old Testament. Redemption was really important. And it, was, it, it came out of this idea that the people and the land that they were settling in, they didn't belong to them, they belonged to God. And there are these moments in the Old Testament where like, the land is allotted, <laughs> it's given to the different tribes, and this is your land, and this is, but, but even your land is not correct. Because that's what it was. The, the land wasn't, didn't belong to the family. It was allotted to them by God who owned it. And a, a redemption in the law was this practice where, let's say I come on some hard times and I have to uh, sell off this piece of land that's been allotted to my family to somebody else. Or, in the ancient world, I come in even harder times and I decide that I have to sell myself <laughs> to be the slave of somebody. And aware of that need, aware of the scarcity and the brokenness of the world, that that may happen, God created this system where there were times set aside <laughs> and a kinsman would come, they called him a kinsman redeemer, and they would purchase back the land or they would purchase back the person so that it would return to its proper allotment. This is the way that it works in Israel. And this is what redemption signifies. 
It's not the same as salvation. It's not the same as adoption and forgiveness. These are all named separately as different parts of this thing that we call salvation. It is a reclaiming. See, through sin, (laughs) we have sold ourselves into the bondage of the devil. We have sold ourselves into a life of crushing oppression under the scarcity and violence and sickness and death, these enemies of God. But in love, Jesus has come and paid the price to buy us back his own life. This is the amazing truth that Paul is proclaiming with this little word, redemption. That the Son of God came and suffered and bled and died to buy us from the hands of the devil to pay what we owed that we could never pay ourselves in order to restore us, but not even for our sake, but for God's sake, to restore what belonged to God. To buy back enslaved people. Actually, to buy back broken creation as well, but that's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. And now we are sons of God, free from enmity, but we are also now the people of God again, free from the powers that oppressed us. But still, even free of the world, even free of the devil, we are still overwhelmed by that third power, the flesh. There's no two ways about it. Every one of us is a slave to flesh. Sin is a real thing. We don't like the word in our culture as much as, I don't know if we ever liked it, but it's a much more taboo word in our culture than it used to be. In Ephesus, here in Mount Vernon, no one is without sin. Paul tells us in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, not one of us is not such a slave to our flesh that Isaiah tells us all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We're all guilty. Lust, greed, hatred, violence, slander, covetousness, or pride, whatever your vice is, or if you're like me, it's all of them at some point or another. And if you've convinced yourself that you're somehow better than all this, then you're a fool to boot. Paul knows, this all, knows all about this himself. In fact, he calls himself the foremost of sinners. Paul. Like, he's one of the good guys, right? <laughs> now he says, I'm the worst. We don't need the enmity of the world to entangle us. We don't need the powers of the devil to crush, crush us. We can corrupt ourselves holy and blameless. (laughs) That's funny if you know me. But in his grace, in order to save us from the sins of our flesh, 
God does something that I think is even more incredible. Even more incredible than overcoming the world and the devil. He forgives us. And the word here in the Greek is so much bigger than forgive. It it means freeing from something that confines us. It means releasing us. Freeing us from the obligation of guilt and of punishment. A cancellation of our brokenness. And Jesus Christ, because of the great, his great goodness and mercy, God takes your worst sin, along with all the rest of them, and he makes it untrue. He forgives your sexual morality and lust. He forgives your hatred and enmity and violence. He forgives your slander and dishonesty. He forgives your greed and covetousness. He forgives your pride. Whatever dark weight you carry, whatever truth that you can't bear to look at, that failure that you just don't talk to anybody about, he forgives it, he takes it away, He cancels it in Jesus Christ. In in Christ, we, who were once a sinful children of Adam, we are now the righteous children of God. We, who were once the wretched slaves of the devil, are now the holy people of God. And we, who were once rotten in our sinful flesh, are forgiven holy and blameless before him. Your sins are removed from you, the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. Not just what you did yesterday before you repented and came to him, but what you do today and what you will do tomorrow. Not just what you name and confess, but even the things that you don't know. Psalmist says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. You were declared innocent from your hidden faults. Those things that we need God to search us and reveal, you're forgiven. Because just as Jesus brought you into a new family, now you have a new identity. You're holy and blameless. Just as Jesus brought you into his kingdom, you are now a people of righteousness and justice. Just as Jesus paid the price for your sins, you are forgiven. This is your identity. This is who you are, the forgiven sons and daughters of God. Ultimately, that is the answer to the struggle that the Ephesians are having, to the struggle that we have So the question of how do we live in this world as as different now that we have been forgiven? (laughs) Now that we know Jesus, how do we keep from defining ourselves through the cultural things that we hang on to? It's by knowing that you are not the person who hung on to those cultural things. In Christ, through the life of death and resurrection of Jesus, you are made new in every way. 
And we're going to wade deeper into that down the road. Paul, he's just starting. But if you're like me, and the real question you have is, well, why? That's my question. I ask myself that question all the time. The answer is humbling and for a lot of us a bit troubling. The why is because, it's because. It's that answer, you know? Because. It's because in his grace and mercy, he chose to. That's it. His grace is according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Next week, we'll look a little bit more at that surprising and gracious choice. It's contained in that mystery of his will that's there at the end of this passage. But today, I just want you to hear me. If you call on Jesus Christ, if he is your Lord and Savior, you are adopted in Christ free of the enmity that you are entangled in. You are redeemed in Christ, free from the powers that oppress you. You are forgiven in Christ, free from the sin that defines you. And what are you supposed to do about that? It's just live in that reality. It's not simple. It's not like a switch is flipped and all of a sudden the powers of the devil and the world and the flesh, they, they just aren't there anymore. You're free, but they're still, they're still hanging around. It's that tricky reality that I've already talked about, that already but not yet reality. This is where we live. You are adopted, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, it's done, you're free, but the work is still being played out. You still live in the space where the devil and the world and the flesh, they still want to rule you, they still want to entangle you, they still want to oppress you. The funny tension is actually even here. If you take the time to look at the grammar, uh, Paul in verse 1 calls them saints, holy ones, and he uses the present tense. These men and women who Paul's going to go on and say, why are you worshiping idols and why are you, you know, doing all these bad things and why are you hating each other? You are holy now. But in verse 4, he says that God chose us to be holy and blameless, pointing forwards. So which is it? It's both. Because this is the reality that though Jesus has justified us, this word that we use just means he's made us holy and blameless. We are, we're looked at, you know, our little label says holy and blameless. We're still being made holy and blameless. Like, functionally so. Theologically, we talk about the imputed, imparted righteousness of Jesus. We can get into that some of the time. What it means is he both credits us as righteous. You are holy. And he grows us in righteousness. You will become holy. 
and the, and the imputed that you are is now. It is true. It is your identity. And that you become, well, that takes your whole life. So we live in that tension between that old self and that new self. Paul talks about this struggle a lot. He gets all angsty about it in Romans 7. Later in Ephesians, he's going to talk about putting to death the old, well, putting away the old man. He uses to death somewhere else. You will still wrestle with your old oppressors. The devil, the world, and the flesh, they're hanging around, they're making themselves known every single day of your life. And when he comes again to renew the world, to defeat the devil, and to resurrect your flesh, hallelujah. But until then, culture often wins. That's why. It's why it's hard for the church to escape these very dangers and we still bake them into who we are. It's why we need to be continually reminded about who we are in Jesus Christ so that we can struggle well in that space. So that we can look towards that completed act, what we have gained on the cross and in the resurrection. We can look at the grace and peace that has been lavishly poured out on us. As we do so, we can know Jesus Christ and walk more and more in him. A new, unified people. A new, freed from oppression church and new and forgiven saints. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I just pray you would make this true to us. So often, we feel that who we are truly are the people who are oppressed, who are enslaved, to the devil and the world and to our own flesh. But you have told us that we are a new people. You have told us that we are adopted and redeemed and forgiven. And I pray, God, that you would draw us into that reality, that we would know that and we would walk in the comfort and confidence and hope of that truth. We pray this for your glory, for the sake of your kingdom, in the name of your Son. Amen.